I told my wife, I think we getting to be a fixture around here. I don't know if I'm going to wear my welcome out, but I'm sure happy to come every time. I, I told her it would be easy to be a member here, but I'd probably be the most delinquent member you have, so that wouldn't help you too much. But I can assure you it's a joy for us every time that we get to be with you. And uh, we love the organ. I, I miss the organ in so many places where we go, and I appreciate such a young and that organ every time we come. And Josiah, what a beautiful song that was. And we just come through this week uh, emphasizing the importance and the necessity of the cross and my how relevant it was <clears throat> for the service that I want to share with you this morning. <clears throat> I love this time of the year. I like it because uh, everything is coming to life. And uh, there's something about spring and the Easter season that... Uh, I sort of bask in it for weeks after we even celebrate Easter. And that's sort of on my heart even to this very day. So I'm going to ask you, if you have your Bibles, you like to look uh, in your Bible. It's uh, the last chapter in the Gospel of Luke that I want to share for a few moments this morning. And it's an interesting passage that I live, give with, uh, to you. It's much longer than I'm going to read but I would like to just open it up, beginning with the 13th verse of the Luke uh, chapter 24. And if I were to read the whole context, it'd take you all the way to verse 35. I'm not going to read it all. I just want to open it up, and then I'll speak to you concerning these verses. And we'll reference a verse from time to time. If you want to see it, you have it before you. Uh, would you like to stand for God's word? Luke chapter 24, beginning with verse 13, And behold, two of them went that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was from Jerusalem, about threescore furlongs, or about six or seven miles. And they talked together of all these things which had happened, and it came to pass that while they communed together and reasoned, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were held that they should not know him. Father, one more time we invoke your presence, and what a beautiful sense of your presence we enjoy in the service this morning. We ask that as we have come, you would clear our minds of all the concerns and the burdens and the problems we're facing, and may we get a glimpse of the Holy One. Thank you for gracing us with your presence today. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Two Sundays ago was, of course, what we commonly refer to as Palm Sunday. And that introduced us to history's greatest week that would follow to the next Sunday, the great day of the resurrection, and the whole week is called the Passion Week. That week, of course, faced a tremendous tragedy on Friday when, as we just heard sung about the cross where Jesus was crucified, but it turned out to be the greatest triumph in all of human history on the next three days later on Sunday when Jesus rose from the dead. You know Palm Sunday was the day when Jesus rode into the city of Jerusalem on a borrowed colt and they waved the palm branches and they shouted Hosanna and all the time they were celebrating Jesus coming into Jerusalem, Jesus wept as he looked on at their hollow religious formalism because you see they had expected 
that Jesus was going to establish the ancestral throne of David. He had come to reign. Even these two believed that he would come now and redeem Israel, but Jesus did not come yet to reign. He came to die. And it's interesting because just a few days later, from that Sunday to Friday, these fickle people who were shouting Hosanna all of a sudden turned their shouts to crucify him, crucify him. And that was their shout before he died. What I like to look is at one of these incidents that occurred following uh, this week. And I just read, opened it up to you on the two on the road to Emmaus who had just witnessed the crucifixion of their Savior, Jesus Christ. They were shocked. Darkness had filled their whole horizon, and the loss had blighted their hopes and blinded their eyes. With bowed heads and broken hearts, they make their long journey back to Emmaus. There's a little poem I've read a number of times in my study. It goes something like this. If you put your nose to the grindstone rough and keep it down there long enough, you'll soon forget that there's such things as brooks that babble and birds that sing. These things shall all your world compose, three things shall all your world compose, just you, a grindstone, and your poor old nose. <laughs> I guess while I was studying this passage, that little poem came back to me because I want you to know, while they were walking on with bended heads, very distraught, we need to lift our gaze this morning and get a vision of the Christ. Now these few verses, 22 verses that I'm, not, I'm going to cover, is a narrative with three scenes. And I want to present each scene to show you what was taking place with these two following the crucifixion of Christ. The first scene I call they had flickering lights. I say that because if you notice it said in verse 24, him they did not see. These two were coming from Jerusalem, as I said, some six or seven mile journey, and they were walking on the dusty roads, and the tragic scene of Calvary was in their mind. You see, they had followed Jesus for the last three years, and they loved him, and they served him, and they walked with him. And they were hoping that he would establish his kingdom here on this earth because it states that statement in these verses. Now all of a sudden, the one they laid their hopes in was crucified. They watched him give up the ghost and die. They watched him say, it is finished, hang his head, and that was the end. They watched as they took him into the borrowed tomb and they buried him. And even though there were some on that third day that acknowledged his resurrection, they were too distraught to believe that it was true. The fire now was burning very, very low in their hearts and their mind was fixed on a grave. In fact, they thought it was midnight when in reality it was sunrise, spiritually speaking. And while they were journeying westward following a very exhausting day, spiritually they should have been traveling eastward because a new day had just dawned, but they did not know it. With their outlook downward, they had lost the upward look and when Jesus appeared in their midst as they walked along the dusty road, what a sad plight it must have been that they did not see him. They did not recognize Jesus in their presence. You know, oftentimes I find even in our worship sometimes, we do not recognize the Christ. We do not see him. 
You know, uh, in many pulpits across the land, and I'm afraid to say a lot of places they don't have any pulpits anymore, but they used to put a little plaque on that pulpit taken out of John 12, where the inquiring Greeks came to Philip with this very question, sir, we would see Jesus, or could we see Jesus? And they had that statement, sir, we would see Jesus. Every time I stood in a pulpit and saw that plaque, I was reminded they are not there to see a preacher. They're there to see Jesus, who is the preacher or the teacher. He was talking about 46 years in evangelism. I can tell you I am indeed a novice. In the light of eternity, that's just a flick of the clock. I've got a whole lot to learn, but I'm enjoying the journey no matter what, in spite of what all God has blessed us with. But sometimes we seek him and we seek holiness as an experience Sometimes we talk about it as the ethics of the life. Sometimes we seek it in its exclusiveness and that God had called us to separate ourselves from the unclean. And all of that is honorable and all of that is necessary, but all of that is merely a means to the end. The end is the person. The end is the presence. The end is Christ himself. And so Christ is supreme. Christ is preeminent. Christ must have priority, and we must recognize and acknowledge, as Tom was speaking today in our walk of faith, the very presence of God, the very breath of life that ensues from him. And I'm confident the reason there is so much discouragement, as these two were facing and much defeat, is Christ is left out. Him they saw not. He who is ignored is the one that we need to acknowledge. And too many times we sort of blow our own horns and we sort of want to be the real charismatic personalities and we want to be seen. That's not important. He's the one that we long to see. Isn't it true? I'll, I'll ask for an amen too. I, Brother Josiah asked for one. Got it? I, got, I need to get one every now and then. <laughs> we study a lot about Jesus. We study about the things of Christ, but oftentimes we do not have the vital sense of his presence. It's not a mere experience, as important as that is. It's not a mere emotions, and we all are emotional creatures, and there are times when we revel in the emotions, but it's in the vital presence of his abiding, filling the whole life in himself, because he says you are complete in him, and without his presence, their lights were going out. That's why I called that first scene flickering lights. Remember, they were godly men. In fact, uh, some presume they only give the name of one of these two, Cleopas. There are some who think maybe Peter was the other. Some think maybe his wife. Nobody really knows. All I know is these had walked with him. And he had told them all along that he was going to die. But they didn't grasp it. They were looking for the kingdom to come. And they wanted so much for him to establish that kingdom, but that was not right now the, the possibility. But this flickering lights, we face the second scene. I call it the filled lamps. In verse 15, it says, as these two talked about what they had just witnessed in Jerusalem, Jesus drew near and went with them. Now this is one, and I think maybe the first of the 11 post appearances that Jesus made following his resurrection post-resurrection appearances. After he arose from the dead, you remember he didn't go right back to the Father. It was some 40 days 
before he ascended back to the right hand of the Father and sent the Holy Spirit. And in those 40 days, there's recorded at least 11 different appearances. And this is, I think, maybe the first. I often wonder, why were these two the first ones he appeared to as the risen Christ? I wonder if he knew that these were two that he needed desperately to come back to begin to move the church forward. And I'll show you that why I say that in just a moment. I don't know why they didn't recognize Jesus. There's an interesting statement of the same account recorded in the Mark's Gospel, said that he appeared to them in another form. I'm not sure, perhaps they were so consumed with their own grief, they didn't see him. Let me tell you, as you and I walk this path of life and we live in a world that's no friend of God, no friend of grace, we live in a world where tragedy and pain and sorrow engulf us. We are inundated by it on a daily basis. If we are not careful, our grief will blind us of his presence as we prayed for. Connie, this morning, she's facing surgery. I know what that cancer surgery is like. I've gone through it, and I know the, uh, the, the ang anxious times you have. You have to not allow the grief of your life to overshadow the presence of our Savior. I guess I'm just pleading with you not to allow that to happen. But I do believe these were so consumed by their grief, all of a sudden, unobtrusively, very quietly, appearing in their midst as they walk along this dusty road, the risen, living, deathless Christ appears. Now I want to tell you, they really were distraught. Because I would wonder why anybody would appear out there. And yet alone, Jesus himself. And in verse 17, Jesus then began to talk with them. Now understand, they didn't recognize him. They didn't know this was the Christ. They didn't know this was the one who not only died, but had risen from the dead and was alive. They didn't understand what he was talking about. And he looked at them and said, what manner of communications are you having one with another as you walk and are so sad? If I can put it in our language, you're saying, why are you so down at the mouth? Why are you so distraught? What's the matter with you? And he knew what was the matter. But I think he asked the question, trying to get them to unload your burden on me. He's the great burden bearer. He's our burden sharer. And he was simply wanting them to give it over to him, but they were too distraught. And then one of them said to him, you must be the only one, I'm just paraphrasing, but he said, he said, you must be the only one in these parts that's not aware of the things that just happened. And they were talking about that crucifixion. And he looks at him and said, what things? <laughs> what things? And then they tried to explain to him how they had with wicked hands and all the mock trials taken Jesus and have beaten him and crowned him with thorns on his brow and having uh, mocked him and given him vinegar for water when he thirst and made all kind of noise, crucify him, kill him. And all of a sudden, he looked at him and said, what things? And they looked at him like he lost his mind. And all of a sudden, he gives to them a very gentle rebuke. In verse 25, 26, he looks at these two and says, O fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, are not Jesus to have suffered these things and enter into his glory? Listen, folks, suffering always precedes glory. 
And Jesus had been telling them that. And that's not only true of Christ. That's true of you and me. And Jesus had been telling that all along. I'm going to suffer. It's through death I'm going to destroy him that has the power of death. That is the devil. I'm willing to become sin for you even though I never committed sin in order that you may be made the righteousness of God in me. I'm the lamb that God's provided for the sacrifice for the sins that you've committed. He'd been teaching this for three and a half years. And finally they stood in his glorious presence, the risen Christ, the death conquering Christ, the victorious Christ, one who brought life and immortality out of death. He who was the answer to all of humanity's frustrations and fears and failures, and yet they did not recognize him, and all of a sudden it said he too had lost. They had lost the hallowed presence. You know, uh, I get the privilege of speaking to the best people in the world. And I know oftentimes we come to church and, and some of us have things we can't even share with anybody else. I know that. I've been there. I live in this world too. And yet sometimes we come and we sing his songs. We pray to him. We hear the sermons. We read our scriptures. We go through all this religiosity. And sometimes because it's become so ritualistic in our lives, we come and go with no sense of his hallowed presence at all. I happened to be in a service in a meeting where across these many years I've gone a number of times. And I wouldn't tell you where for anything in the world, but there's one gentleman that sits at the door and greets the people that comes in. And as far as I know, in all these years, has never come into the house of God, into the sanctuary and worshiped God. He goes through all the, you know, I'm, he's the greeter. He's the one that stands. Now, I understand. Don't misunderstand me. I know there has to be in these days some uh, careful attendance to those who come and go in our sanctuary. But I'm not talking about that. And I, I've said oftentimes to Barbara, it must be a terrible thing to come and go from the house of the holy and never worship the holy one. Why would we do that? These are doing it because of their grief. But I want you to notice something as they were walking along with Jesus, seven miles from Jerusalem. In verse 27, after Jesus told them, I tried to understand, why are you so grief-filled? Beginning at Moses, listen to the statement, beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them all the scriptures concerning himself. I would have loved to have enrolled in that school of Christ. I have thought about that statement so many times. What would it be like to sit at the feet of the one this Bible speaks to us about and listen to him expound what all these scriptures mean about him? Oh, I have no idea of how long it took them to become so enriched, but he expounded those scriptures to them. You see, an open grave gives us a living Christ. And it's a living Christ that gives us an open scripture. It's one thing to get into this word. It's another thing for this word to get into us. And Jesus is the living word. This is the written word. He's the risen Christ. And because the living Christ is the key to the word of God, we don't want to read this book like any other book. 
we read it at the feet of Christ, feeling the very life ensue from it to come into us, the partaker of the word of God. And when they arrived at, at Emmaus, now think with me just for a moment. They didn't have any rapid transportation. It took, took you a long while to walk seven miles. And it was a dusty road, and you can only imagine what their minds were having to wrestle with. And when they finally got to Emmaus, having walked with Jesus all the way along and had not recognized him, when they got to Emmaus, he said he made as though he would have gone further. Do you know what that tells me? Jesus will not invade you. Jesus will not compel you. He will not force himself on you without your invitation. And he would have gone further and they looked at him and said they constrained him, oh, abide with us. Abide with us. Come on into the house. And it's interesting because the guest, Jesus, becomes the host. Because it tells me Jesus took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And when he did, all of a sudden, their eyes were opened and they knew him. And when they said they knew him, it said he vanished. I don't know what that does for you. <laughs> but as I read that, I could not get over it because all the way along, if you noticed, they, they got heartburn. In other words, as they were walking with Jesus and as he was talking to them, they said later, my didn't our hearts burn as we listened to him as he opened the scriptures. Don't you feel that from time to time where you just feel like you could almost leap because of what he is saying to us. Now, it's interesting because they had already heard second-handedly that he had risen, but they didn't believe it. And so they came back home. But I want you to know now they knew he had risen first-handed. They had seen the living Christ. They had seen the risen Christ. You know, uh, when you study Acts of the Apostle, it's interesting to note of the 13 apostolic sermons recorded in Acts, the emphasis was not on the death or the crucifixion of Christ. It was on the resurrection of Christ. They were no longer concentrating on the cross. They were concentrating on the empty tomb. He is alive. Christianity is a religion of experience, by the way. And unless it's verified to us personally, we can never be a vital uh, testimony or a witness to this. There's a lot of people who know a lot of things about Christ. A lot of people know a lot of things about Christianity. But the fact is, many of them don't know him. And I can tell you, those on the, in the Acts of the Apostles, when they saw him and knew he was alive, and even when they were brought before the councils, they said, we cannot but speak the things which we've seen and heard. You can jail us, you can put us in, in shackles, you can kill us, but we're going to speak it because we know him. There's something vital about that, isn't there? The living Christ is knowable. He's knowable not only through the scriptures, he's knowable not only through his unique influence in history, and not even through the witness of the institution called the church. He is knowable by his living person. You can recall, I'm sure, the day you first met him. Anybody that's ever met him, you know you don't ever forget that day. I remember in February 1958, I met him for the first time at an altar of prayer. I knew there was a Christ, I guess. I knew there was a Bible. I knew there were churches. I knew the bells rang on Sunday. I knew people had communion. I knew all those things. Didn't go, but I knew all about that. 
but it wasn't until I met Jesus that it all made sense to me and has been making sense ever since. Amen. I love him. There must be a testimony by the Holy Spirit to the human consciousness until he becomes the living bread on which you feed, the living water on which you drink, the living vine in which you and I are engrafted in. He becomes, as he himself said, closer than a brother. He's closer than, I think there's a song we sing, the very breath that we breathe, this Christ. His presence will do what it did for these men. It will dispel your darkness. It will strengthen your weakness. It will calm your fears, dispel all your despondency. Now let me give you the last scene of this little story, and I'm just sharing it with you because it kind of burns within me having come through Christmas week, uh, Easter week, and I go through this week, and when I do, there's certain parts of it seems to jump out and become more alive for me. They were flickering lights. Then they became filled lamps, which constituted flaming lives. They came alive, and they were fiery lives. That's why in verse 32 and 34 it says, Did not our hearts burn within us as he talked and opened the scriptures to us? Once you receive this, you can't keep it to yourself. Fire has a way of spreading. It has to, when it glows, everybody sees it. Lights blazing now and hearts burning. Do you know what they did late at night? And you have to get the picture. There's no street lights where they were walking. There's no lights at all where they were walking, and the terrain was anything but nice and smooth. But now late at night, they turn and walk the same seven miles back to Jerusalem to tell them we have met with the living Christ. Despondently, they trudged along for seven, hours, seven miles. Now they're going back. I don't know if you've ever got a picture of that, but I, I thought to myself, man, something struck a fire in them for that to happen and with lights burning and hearts, hearts blazing, they made their long trip back to declare the good news. He is alive. He has triumphed over death, hell, and the grave. Our faith is no longer in vain. And I can tell you, if it's anything at all, morality was touched by emotions. Now, I'm not highly emotional. I do not say I'm not emotional because we're all emotional. We all have an emotional creature. We just respond differently than others. But I can tell you there are times like this that I think you'd almost have to shout just a little bit. And I guarantee you they had a step much faster than what they came from Jerusalem with. They were really high-stepping it to get back. They had to tell those other disciples, man, we know he's alive. We walked with him and he's talked to us. His presence was not only comforting to them, it becomes challenging to us. I'm thankful they called the Holy Spirit the Comforter. The word comforter there, of course, the Holy Spirit, is not one that just soothes us, soothes us, and he does when we need it, but it means he is the one that stands beside us. He is the paraclete. He is our lawyer. He is the one that sustains us, that helps us, guides us, and directs us. He is the comforter, and here in this sense, he was the challenger. And the first words following the resurrection in the Old, Test in the, uh, old uh, Church was all hail. That was their first words when they found Jesus was alive. 
And I worry that maybe the modern church has lost that triumphant sound. All hail. Grace is seen in the crucifixion. But glory is seen in the resurrection. If you want to know what glory is, it's holiness shining forth through his children. It becomes the outflowing fragrance of his life. And that makes other people long for the same presence that you have. It wasn't long being in the church that I saw people that I wanted to be like. And I don't mean like them personally. I wanted to know what they knew. And there's something contagious about Jesus. And when you have him, even the sinner wants to know more about him. Even they see the difference in you. And there's something that wells up in a hunger in them. I've had them say, you've had them say, I know you have. I know, I, I wish I lived like you lived. I, I, I wish we had what you had. This tragedy is everybody can have all of Jesus that they want. I mentioned maybe to you, I have a sister. She's 85 years of age this year, and she's been in a rest home the last three years or so. And she's had to park in some 20 some years and wife and I go see her and she can't talk. She, all she can do is sort of gaze forward and once in a while she'll give you a blank stare just for a moment and it's a very tragic disease. But before she got that way and she was not one that went to church and one of those same lives like we see so many, you know, just worried about making a living, get taking care of a job and getting the things of this world. She had two beautiful girls, and, but she never, never gave God any time. Before she got so bad, she looked at Barbara and I, and she said, I'd give anything in the world if I lived my life for Jesus like you have. Now, I'm not setting myself up there as a standard, but I want to tell you what. When it comes down to the close of life in this world, all that's going to matter is what do we do with Jesus. That's all that's going to matter. People don't care how much money you make. They don't care how fine a home you have. Somebody else will live in that home. Somebody else will drive the automobile. All that stuff will dissipate. All that matters is Jesus. As flaming lives... Christ reaffirmed to these on the road to Emmaus his reality, but he also re-instructed them and had to equip them. Do you remember what he had said before he went to the cross? I'm going to die. But he said, I'm not going to leave you comfortless. He said, I want you to go to Jerusalem and wait for the promise of the Father, which saith he, you've heard of me. For John baptized with water unto repentance. But he that cometh after me shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost fire. His fan is in his hand. He will thoroughly purge his floor and gather his wheat into the garner. He said, I'm not going to leave you comfortless. When I get back to the Father, I'm going to send another comforter unto you. He didn't mean by that he was ceasing to be their comforter. We're going to have, we got one in heaven, we got one in our heart. Jesus is in heaven, the Holy Spirit's in our heart. And he said, I'm going to give him to you. And their hearts burning and lights blazing, if they were to continue... In the mission that God's called us to, no, no, not only them, you and me, they had to wait for the promised Holy Spirit in all of its fullness. And when they did, they turned that known world upside down. That's what the scripture says. I used to think maybe they should have said right side up. I don't know. But they, 
they really made their mark for Jesus. Now, I'm, I'm about through. I'll, I just want to share this this morning. E. Stanley Jones, the great Methodist missionary to India for many, many years, he said it was interesting when you think of Pentecost, they tried to silence the voice of Jesus when they crucified him. They tried to shut his mouth, never speak again. He said 50 days later, on the day of Pentecost, they had 120 voices <laughs> like Jesus. It's almost like hitting a fire, trying to put it out, and all it does is just make it spread. And that's what they did when Jesus was crucified. My question, I think I know the answer, part of it, anyhow, why is Christianity today seemingly so unattractive or unconvincing or even unwanted in this world today? I wonder if we have lost the glow and the glory of his presence. I don't want to go through the forms of religion. Just go through a mimic. We must recapture the spirit of that first Easter. I mean, things happened like never happened before. Because it would require flaming lives whose hearts burn, the reality of his resurrection, the blessed hope of his return. And if the sacred ever towers over the secular, and if Christianity triumphs in this world, it's because we have that glow. There's one other thing I want to put as a footnote. On the day of Pentecost, they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Now that fullness involved a cleansing. But if you read just another chapter or so, it says they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Same men, same people. What are they talking about? I thought they were filled here. Now they're filled here. There's not only the fullness of cleansing where Jesus purges the heart and fills us with the very presence of the Holy Spirit. There is the fullness of constancy. This is not automatic. It, we just don't get a stock in holiness as Wesley said, okay, I got enough today. I won't worry about now for a few, four. No, no. We must ever keep abreast of his presence and as we face the world with all of his anger and hate, we must have more and a continuing fullness to keep abreast of the rising tide of evil that is all around us. We have him. We have him. His name is Jesus. I don't want to be without him. You don't want to be without him. Aren't you glad that Jesus comes to us even at times when we don't even recognize him? Sometimes I'm afraid we don't look for him, we don't want him, but he wants us. And he puts within us the desire to be more like him. I, I ask if, uh, Brother Tom, if we could sing, uh, fill me now, fill me now. Jesus, come and fill me now. If you would come, I think it's on page 492 in your hymnal. But uh, without any pulling or anything, I, I'd like to sing this as a, as a, a desire to say within your own self that you want to be filled with all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you want a continuation of that fullness. Would you stand with us as we sing this song? Fill me now, 492, I believe, in your hymnal. And let's sing it from where you are. And as you sing it, listen to the words and make it a prayer. Fill me now. And if you will, God will honor you this, this very moment. Let's sing it together. <clears throat>
listen closely to the words. Hover o'er me, Holy Spirit, bathe my trembling heart and brow. Fill me with thine hallowed presence. Come, O oh come, and fill me now. Fill me now, fill me now. Holy Spirit, fill me now. Fill me with thy hallowed presence. Come, O oh come, and fill me now. Sing the second verse. Thou canst fill me, gracious spirit, though I cannot tell thee how, but I need thee, greatly need thee. Come, O oh come, and fill me now. Fill me now, fill me now. Holy Spirit, fill me now. Fill me with thy hallowed presence. Come, oh, come and fill me now. Before we sing that, uh, I think there's maybe two more verses, I'm not sure, but before we sing the next one, let me just say, as I go from church to church, and yours notwithstanding, many of you have walked with Jesus for so many years, and you come to church so faithfully, and God has honored you across these years. Let me tell you something, he is more real today than he was when you first met him. And he has not abandoned us. And in spite of what we face in a world in which you and I live, there is a hallowed presence that wants to glow through you and me. I'm not talking about a pretense. I mentioned to you crucifixion gives us the grace, but it's the resurrected Christ that gives the glory that exudes from you and me. And the world must see him and the glory that exudes from you because of his presence. I challenge you, don't get discouraged. I challenge you, no matter what you face, and I know uh, because I've been confronted with more recent days than I ever have, he is faithful. He is mindful. He oftentimes is with you in a way that you don't even recognize. So I challenge you, when you read these words, fill me now, fill me now, there is a continuance of this fullness. It's, it's almost like you enlarge yourself, and he has to keep it full to its fullest capacity. Not only filled, but flowing over. <laughs> That's what the glory does, isn't it? So let's sing this next verse with that in mind. I challenge you, don't get discouraged, and then we'll have a closing prayer following this one more verse. I am weakness, full of weakness, of weakness. at thy sacred feet I bow. Bless divine, eternal spirit, fill with power and fill me now. Yes. Fill me now, fill me now.
presence. Come, oh, come and fill me now. Bow your heads with me, Father. We need you every hour, but we need you every moment. We need your fullness. We know there are probably some facing some days ahead that the enemy loves to get us to distance ourselves or wonder why it's all happening and questions come like at two on the road to Emmaus and discouragement filled them and despondency and pain and fear. But Jesus came. And even though they didn't recognize him, he was there and he stayed with them and they welcomed him. We welcome you, Lord. Abide with us. Never leave us nor forsake us. You promised you never would, and we claim that promise today. Comfort our hearts and challenge us to hold steady. The greatest part of our relationship is yet to come. As we sang this morning the little chorus, when that moment said we could shout and be happy and sing when we get to the other side. But in the meantime, we'll be faithful. In the name of Jesus, we ask it. And all of God's people said, Amen. 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 God bless you.